When talking about the great wars of history, we would be remiss not to include the conquering war wave of the Mongol Empire of Genghis Khan. In terms of territory captured and games played without a loss, the Mongols and their tiny ponies are without rivals. Weirdly, Hollywood has steered mostly clear of this epic story, with the exception of a Technicolor travesty starring Omar Sharif and a really, really weird and ludicrous movie starring John Wayne, both of which I'm sure we'll end up watching for this show. Maybe it's because the heroes and a great many of the conquered are from Central Asia, and the only conceivable role for Brad Pitt would be in a bit part as some minor hapless Slav or Mygar Unterberger getting his ass handed to him. Anyway, we jumped at the chance to watch a picture made with a majority Mongolian cast, but unfortunately, this isn't much of a war film. There are lots and lots of fight scenes where the young future Khan gets thrashed and misused, and even a major battle or two, but the bulk of this 2007 production is a consistently brutal and epically beautiful origin story of the man, the myth, and the legend. It's an astonishing international collaboration with Russian director Sergei Bodorov, a cast from all over East Asia, financing from Germany, Russia, and Kazakhstan, and shooting locations mostly in Mongolia and Kazakhstan. Today's film picks up its story in 1192, when Genghis Khan, whose name was Temujin, is trapped in a prison in western China. It flashes back to his childhood, to how he met his wife Borte, and then wins its way past the poisoning of his father and the usurpation of his hereditary title by a lesser member of his clan, and the humiliation, repeatedly, of his family. In his whole life, he has only brief glimpses of stability, trust, and friendship, mostly in his alliance with Jamuka, his patron. Temujin endures slavery and imprisonment, but never loses his faith that he will be reunited with Borta and restored to his rightful station in life. On his path to becoming the Khan, he introduces innumerable social and strategic innovations, including the game-changing metal stirrup. He builds a loyal army in a culture quick to switch alliances, he unites the clans, and eventually conquers unbelievably large swathes of the planet, mostly off-screen uh, after this movie. Genghis Khan's name still rings out through history. He's the founding father of Mongolia, is still reviled in Iran as a genocidal maniac, and is the great-grandfather of an awful lot of Eurasian people, including some of you. But his history is hard to tell. They were nomads. He left no monuments, no documents, no contemporary biography, and famously, no tomb. This film was barely noticed by American audiences, earning less than $6 million domestically. Perhaps because the overlap of people who want to see a blood and guts torture epic, and those who are prepared to watch a two-hour horse movie in Mongolian, is small. But there's something amazing about this film and the captivating life of a man who lived nearly a thousand years ago who left such an indelible mark on history. All podcasts fear the thunder, but not friendly fire. Today we review Mongol, the rise of Genghis Khan. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the only war movie podcast hosted by guys who became blood brothers immediately after meeting each other, and that's really starting to backfire. I'm Ben Harrison. 
Oh, but that milk is so delicious. I'm Adam Pranica. <laughs> and I am John Roderick. I feel like uh, becoming blood brothers, you start the same way no matter what culture you're in. But then what you do with the blood kind of de- depends on where you are, right? Like some cultures, you just gra- grab hands like uh, Schwarzenegger and the uh, CIA agent in the beginning of Predator. Other cultures, you drip the blood into sheep milk and drink it. I don't remember the scene in Stand By Me. Like, this isn't how they did it then, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, throughout this entire film, the role that fermented milk plays, uh, it's it should have its own billing. It's, uh, it's like <laughs> definitely a member of the cast. Have you guys ever become blood brothers with anybody? Aside from each other? No one's ever wanted to become blood brothers with me, Ben, so no. No, I've never even spit in my hand and shook someone else's hand, which seems like like the starter course for that. <laughs> that's the uh, training wheels of Blood Brother. Yeah, that's <laughs> at least like let's seal this pact with some spit. Yeah, <laughs> I did it one time, but I was very drunk and I really regret it. <laughs> <laughs> because you drank the spit after. Gross. It was blood, dude. It was not cool. Oh, you blood brothered oh. with somebody. Yeah. Who and for what reason? It was an I love you man that really got taken to an imp- inappropriate level. Do you still talk to the person? No. Whoa. Wow. So let me let me ask you this. If that person shows up at your house and says, I want you to go to war with me because someone stole my wife, what are you going to say? Them's the brakes, asswipe. <laughs> oh, let me see how, how much a blood brothership matters to you. <laughs> I mean, the, the brotherhood between uh, these two characters is like, I mean, they, they lean into it. Like, they really believe in their, in their brotherness, don't they? Well, one of them a little bit more than the other, I would say. Right. There's a good third of this movie that's them sort of palling around, and I really wanted to watch them butch and Sundance all over the Mongolian countryside. Like when they <laughs> when things were good with them, it was a really good feel good adventure movie. I, I I feel like the actor who played Jamuka when when he first arrived on the scene, I thought maybe he was gonna he was too muggy, like he just was mugging it up from the very start, and I felt like. Uh, up until that point, everyone was so uh, non-demonstrative, except except for Temujin's father. Everybody else was pretty dry. And then Jamuka shows up and he's like, got all these facial expressions going on. And he's like, walk-a-doodle. <laughs> but th- as the film pro- progressed, like his personality really shone through. I really liked his performance. And you're absolutely right, Adam. I was just like, come on, you guys, why don't you go do some adventures? But then Temujin betrays him, like, within the hour. I thought a lot about how uh, the idea that this is a subtitled foreign language film played with my perception of that character and the actor who played him, too. Because initially I thought that, uh, that he was a little ham and cheese. But then I thought, like, with the subtitled film, like so much of the performance is sort of like mime performance, right? Like you're reading and then you're getting an emotional performance from the actor. And I wonder how much that, uh, that handicaps an actor or, or makes them make different choices in this way. 
I, in the end, really enjoyed his performance. And, you know, after that first minute of Ham, like, found his his performance to be great throughout. And he really changes as a character throughout, too. Like, uh, as his relationship to Temujin changes, so, too, does his uh, attitude. And it, and it grows really dark. When he cuts his hair, you know it's on. Right. Oh, yeah. When he sh- he's sitting sharpening that knife, that was a really cool moment when he tested how sharp his knife was by whether or not it could just cut the fuzz of a sable jacket yeah without just like in the air like just sort of like breeze across it and and create fluff i was like that might be a cultural reference but even without me knowing the reference that's pretty badass and it's a thing that survives today because you know when someone cuts their own hair it means they're in a bad way Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There are. <laughs> I uh I'm I'm living proof. <laughs> Don't do it at 3 a.m., which it seemed like he was he actually was doing in this film about 3 yeah. a.m. Left on the cutting room floor was the scene of Jamuka posing for press and publicity photos. Right. <laughs> right after doing that. Uh this is the earliest in history movie that we've watched so far, I believe. Set in like the 1100s. This movie actually takes place right about the same time as Braveheart. Hmm. Ooh. And of course, the technology of war differed quite a bit around the world, but th- these are more or less contemporaneous. Damn, I didn't even I didn't even think about that, but yeah, I guess you're right. In addition to like the time that this story takes place, the this hero's journey felt familiar in the way that Braveheart's story was and and sort of like the Gladiator film, the Russell Crowe's Gladiator felt. This story of uh, of Genghis Khan was unfamiliar to me separate from that, but the hero's journey in general was something that felt very familiar, and it was sort of a thing that helped me know and understand this this character. Like, did you guys know anything about Genghis Khan outside of his caricature as a as the name of a restaurant? Because I really didn't. <laughs> uh, no, I read a little bit on his Wikip- on the Wikipedia entry about him after this, and was surprised to see the like a lot of the beats of this film just right there in the early life bio. Well, and I think part of the reason is that there's only there there are very few surviving records of Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire. It wasn't really like. There, there was a written Mongolian language, but there's one, kind of one major document that survives from that time called the Secret History of the Mongol Empire or something like that. And it only survives as a Chinese translation. And you can't trust it when someone else writes, another culture writes your own history. Like, how credible is that? But I've spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out the Mongols and Genghis Khan because... Ultimately, Genghis didn't, and I'm going to call him Genghis because I feel like he and I are pretty tight. Oh, you're going to get a lot of letters about how you pronounce it, I'm sure. <laughs> Genghis. But he never, uh, he never made it to Europe. He made it as far as the Caspian Sea, but his son got all the way to Europe and all the way into Germany. Like um, he was, uh, and the Mongols were a major factor in medieval Europe. 
that isn't really talked about that much when we talk about medieval Europe. We're not, we, it isn't part of the story, the fact that they were, that Europeans felt constantly under pressure. But his reputation as a person is like one of brutality and savagery. Like, how much is this film retconning him as a person? Because in the film, they portray him as a great and generous man to his troops and not a savage, but like a man of codes. And a real romantic, too. Right. I think the question to ask is, where do we get that that legend of him being savage? And where we get it from is our European right. um, uh, reading of that history. So that's a classic example of like, of course, we still hear about him as this um, raping, blood-sucking, uh, subhuman evildoer. But we're getting that directly down from from like the writers in Constantinople or I mean he was he was like threatening the existence of Europe so of course they portrayed him that way well and I mean he also like murdered millions and put their heads on pikes and did terrible terrible things like they're like one of their tactics was kill everybody when you take over a place yeah but that was also i mean the crusaders weren't exactly super nice when they got somewhere either i didn't say it wasn't one of their (laughs) tactics i just said it was one of his that's just the 1100s guys that's just yeah that's just how that's just how it goes i mean you know think about nobody got defenestrated yeah, oh yeah. Well, you don't want to get defenestrated. Well, it's hard to defenestrate someone out of a yurt. <laughs> that doesn't hurt as bad as getting thrown out of the Tower of Prague or whatever. Um, his his Wikipedia entry is really funny because it has spouse and then there's just a long, long list of names. <laughs> Borte is the first one, but there's a bunch of others. He was not a monogamous Mongol. No. Well, the, he's the, those are morganatic wives. Ooh, what's that word? I don't know that word. It's when a king marries a wife of lower status and her children, although acknowledged as being the children of that ruler, don't inherit any of the privileges or rank. Uh-huh. I think within, you know, within their time, they're acknowledged as like the, the son or daughter of the king. So it's, they, they don't become peasants, right. but they don't inherit the, the throne. Morganatic. And so you can have one, you can have your actual wife. And then in Genghis Khan's case, something like 500 Morganatic wives. I should, I should say, or in finishing my thought, like I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out uh, the Mongols, and it's it's very hard. It's very hard to make sense of it. It's hard to make sense of what what the borders of Mongolia were, what their relationship to China was, how they made it as far as they did, what their style of war was, and how they interacted with the cultures that they overran. Like it's there's just not very much good reporting. Yeah. The if you if you go on the Wikipedia, there's a, a on uh, the Genghis Khan entry. There's a GIF of the Mongol Empire spreading, and it like it goes from the borders that we consider to be Mongolia today to like all of China, all of Korea, like all the way over to Iraq, Iran, between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and up into Europe. It is such a huge portion of territory. 
Is it the biggest empire that's ever been formed? The biggest, yeah. I mean, Alexander the Great did a similar thing going the other direction, but um, and and a long time before, but didn't uh, didn't accomplish. I mean, you know, he didn't conquer all of China. Right. What's spectacular about that gif is the rate, Ben. Like it's it grows so large in in five and ten year increments, and they're chewing up the continent so quickly. It's incredible that this is all just done on horseback. Yeah, India is like super grateful to have those Himalayas. Yeah, <laughs> once again. <laughs> do we? How do we feel about this being on our having been on our list now that we've seen it? It feels like uh, in in sort of like the way Patton was. It's a biopic about a significant warrior, and I think that has a special place in a in a sort of tangential war film way, right? We've come up against this several times now. Um, Last of the Mohicans, we we were like, is this a war movie or is this like a romantic love story with some a couple of war moments? A couple of the best war moments ever. <laughs> Jerk. But, but, when, but one of the first movies we did, uh, From Here to Eternity, we spent that whole movie in the barracks, basically... That was a that was a romantic film too. The 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 war only showed up in the last five minutes. Yeah. So I did spend this whole movie thinking, look, at some point he gets on that horse. At some point he rallies all these people behind him, gets on that horse and rides all the way to Iran. When is that going to happen? <laughs> and <laughs> and he kept like not only losing his horse, but like being just thrown into the mud, kicked and put into a stock. And I was like, this is happening an awful lot to this guy. At what point does he become ruler of all the Mongols? And it 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 doesn't happen until I mean it's almost a postscript. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of amazing how much misfortune has visited on him between the ages of like nine years old and 25 years old and it almost like it's almost making the case for why this guy took revenge on the entire planet like everybody that he loves and trusted trusts is either either betrays him or is taken away from him and he's got a real axe to grind by the end. It's, I mean, you can make a character a hero in your film in a couple of ways. And the way that this film chooses to do it is by punishing him. You know, by the first, the first 45 minutes are down. He's been in stocks twice. His, he's lost his wife several times. His wife has been impregnated by a couple of different people. It's not a great feeling for him. Like he's not had a great life and it makes you be on his side. Yeah, I thought about this a lot while watching it. Uh, your take on it, Ben, is absolutely like the reasonable take. But like there's another take, which is that this is exactly the brutality that was true for everyone. And he was not especially I mean, I, he was singled out because he was the son of a of a former con or a dead con. And so there were people that were actively trying to kill him. But, but when you think about it, like his wife was kidnapped by the man whose own wife had been kidnapped by his father. And he he was the son of a kidnapped woman. So it, it feels like 
I mean, when his wife was first kidnapped and I was like, oh, you know, this is awful. And then the man who was doing the kidnapping was like, this is revenge for my own wife being stolen by your father. I was like, oh, hmm. Like that guy has the same motivation as you, jerk. <laughs> right. Yeah, like, seems like he's also got a case here if you're, you know, if we're in like a wife kidnapping culture. Um, so so the other the other side of it was that all this extra awfulness didn't cause him to be it, that wasn't what produced his viciousness because the viciousness was in everyone those were just the trials that made him a success rather than he, he was successfully and in, in a way like he was successful because he tamed the viciousness of his culture right he, and that he set up a a code that could accommodate it and focus it on a common goal of taking over the entire planet. Yeah. Like rather than massacre all of his defeated enemies, he welcomed them into his own army. And that was a, a huge innovation that caused him to unite all the Mongols. And that's like super humane compared to what everybody else was doing at the time. So, yeah, I and I and I went back and forth on that. Like I I spent a lot of this movie thinking about how I would have been personally like did there were there were so many people, so many probably heroic people during that time that just got killed, got killed like as a matter of course, like offhanded. And would I personally have the just the the determination and grit to survive all those insults you know we we could just we we would never be able to test ourselves it is to some extent unimaginable to live in this culture because it is is so alien to modern culture you know like the idea of a 9 year old being told okay it's time for you to pick out the woman you'll marry in 5 years is just mind-boggling. Yeah, or the or the sense that every single person was considered property and as soon as you were not like surrounded by your friends, if you were just out for a walk, yeah, anybody could come along on a horse and just grab you and say like you belong to me now. I think that's I mean, that's not terribly unlike a lot of human cultures all over the world, you know, it was, it was the culture. Yeah. Everywhere. But it demonstrates also that like, no matter how shallow the code that unifies humanity, that, that keeps it from hacking each other to bits. Like a big part of this movie is about the, the code and then the absence of a code and what that does to a culture. I think specifically it's what pastoral societies are like. I think, you know, agricultural I'm using the wrong words, but like societies that are like semi-nomadic and raise animals are like have a lot of like observed differences from societies that like put down roots and grow crops in one place and don't move around that much. Is that because they have more interactions with other cultures than those that are the the root putters? I've read a little bit about this in Africa that they're like when you look at like the how people are doing now in terms of like their education and wealth and compare it to the kind of behaviors that their ancestors were engaged in, whether they were like raising cows on the, on the, on the plains or 
growing crops, like people that were growing crops have are like more likely to be able to integrate into modern society easily because they have some social mores around trusting your neighbors and stuff that if you're just like protecting a herd of cows out on a field and anybody that comes up could be there to kill you and steal your livestock like those are cultures that wind up not having an easy time adapting to modern civil society yeah and a big part of that is a concept of private property everything we see in the mongol culture at the time is communal beyond like a share of the treasure or whatever your family gets a share but um but there's no nobody has any land yeah it's just the land yeah right if you're growing crops you'd put a fence around them and over time you're like this is mine and that <laughs> is the beginning of capitalism or i mean it's the beginning of private property it's the beginning of wealth it's the beginning of like like uh, wealth that you can I mean, wealth in a different sense than right. than just the wealth that you're able to carry in the form of gold and reputation. And sable jackets. Sable jackets. I fucking want that sable jacket. But but in terms of the harshness, I mean, if you're sitting there with a um, with a little farm and you're growing corn and you've got a little uh, like a chicken coop and your town has a set of mores and then a tribe of nomadic warriors come sweeping through you're going to find yourself enslaved whether you have a code or don't right but like like alexander the great was coming out of a more sit in one place and grow crops kind of society right uh i mean he was certainly conquering that that ground and thinking of it in terms of a well a different style of empire than but but also his army was pillaging and, yeah. and living off the land. I mean, what's what's interesting about this is that when when Europeans first arrived in the Americas, you know, the, the Mongols are living like the Plains Indians. But when whites first arrived on the East Coast, like there were the, the indigenous people of that area were living much more in sort of villages that had if not permanent locations, then certainly, you know, they, they understood there wasn't private property in that way, but there was much more of a kind of civil society. Right. But it was pre gunpowder or it was, it was pre like castle. <laughs> right. And so it's a, it's a question of, I mean, I, you always think of like Europeans arriving in 1492, having this enormous technological difference over the Native Americans. But in 1200, it was pre-gunpowder or pre-blunderbuss. Um, pre, so in 1200 in Europe, everybody was fighting with swords just as they, you know, like and Genghis Khan or the, the, uh, the Mongols were able to sweep through Europe with this technology and right. be very successful. It wasn't like the, the Mongols had some crazy technological advantage. Or that the Europeans had any advantage over them, even though they were able, you know, they were building stone castles and they did have the flying buttress. But uh, in the in the subsequent 200 years between this and when when they were you know, when Europeans were building sailing ships and crossing the ocean, it was only a couple hundred years. The technological advantage that they had over 
Native Americans, and and it, and so it wasn't. You know, there had not much time had passed. One of the things I thought that was really striking about this film is like, for how often enslavement was depicted, or or the taking of one person from another, there was never really the the moment of being upset about it. Like, it was so understood that it was a thing that for Temujin to be losing all of these things and to have his wife taken away, there's never the moment you see in an American film of, you know, dropping to your knees, screaming to the sky. Like, his stoicism was really striking to me as a as a main character. Did you guys feel that well, way? Well, and hers, too. Yeah. I mean, every time somebody came along and was like, you're, wa- you're my wife now, she was like... <sighs> yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, like, hmm. I mean, she had two children with her captors, two separate captors, and both she and... I mean, I think there was quite a bit of recognition, implied recognition... Jamuka, you know, raised an eyebrow a couple of times that Temujin accepted Borte's children as his own. And I think the implication was that maybe it was much more normal that he would have put those kids to death. Yeah. Right. Like, like a lion coming onto the pride and killing all the cubs. Yeah. And that was never explicitly said. Right. But, but Jamuka kind of was like, oh, He's your son now? No. Huh. What do you know? As you see the phases of of Temujin's life, you also see those same fade phases played out for Borta, and I thought her character was great. Like she right away takes the piss out of Temujin. She yeah. makes really hard decisions later for the sake of her family. Yeah. She saves him from prison for one. She's sort of uh she's another hero to the story. Yeah, secret badass. Well, and it should be noted at this point that the actress playing Borta of the three main characters is the only actual Mongolian. Hmm. Yeah. Temujin is played by a Japanese actor and Jamuka is played by a Chinese actor. I was really questioning myself when I first started watching this movie because I was like, I'm not um, that great at parsing the different like ethnic groups in Asia, but like this dude looks like looks Japanese to me and and then I was like well that's probably just me being an ignorant idiot I don't know what I'm looking at I'm let me like watch this movie about the Mongolians and then when I looked it up later I was like damn it he was <laughs> were they speaking Mongolian I, I also don't know anything about the languages like I detected that they were speaking Chinese later in the in the town when he gets imprisoned but yeah, there are the, a lot of this film is in Mongolian and and I really wondered whether or not uh, the other two actors were able to speak unaccented Mongolian or whether to a Mongolian viewer, they would have been just like fumbling. Right. Are they doing it phonetically, just memorizing the sounds? And that would have been very weird if you're if you're watching a movie about the hero of your country and he's speaking with a thick Japanese accent. Yeah. Well, especially because there's a scene about the beauty of the Mongolian language. It would be... Right. Uh, improper if they were speaking a different language as they as they describe mongolians beauty as a dialect i tried to find some talk about this online like yeah. so you know tried to go to like a a mongolian listserv and uh and read the commentary or a mongolian reddit yeah babelfish uh, dot <laughs> but i wasn't able to find any um talk about this and of course this movie was directed by a russian 
and much of it filmed in Kazakhstan. So exciting international picture. I read that they had to have 30 translators on set at all times because the crew was like German and Chinese and Russian and wow. there were just so many different languages being spoken that they had an entire department of people to to translate between people. Wow. What did you think about how the film looked and felt? This is a film from 2008. It felt like a modern giant tentpole action movie. Like the compositions were beautiful. There were hundreds of extras in these battle scenes. The battle scenes felt modern in in every way, I thought. I uh I was shocked at how good it was visually. Yeah. The visuals are amazing. Like I think 80% of this film was probably shot at the magic hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I felt there was a the the blood splatter yeah. Spla- was was a little bit modern in the wrong way. Right. <laughs> it's either it's either they're like blowing up a can of tomato sauce or it's the like digital blood that turns into a puff of mist and then disappears off screen without any explanation about where it went. Yeah, I feel like if someone is wearing a giant yak coat and you <laughs> hit them really hard with a very sharp blade, it's not going to produce like blood just flying everywhere it's you know it may yeah, it almost a, looks like when they when they get sliced the blood is just under the surface of the coat yeah just <laughs> like, like the coat is holding all their blood in you're like well <laughs> i don't know if that if that sword could even get through that coat uh it probably like would hurt but you rarely see that kind of slicey sword play though in other movies i, I kind of like that and it made it squickier to me to see versus like being gone through with a sword to be sliced in that way was hard to watch and there's so much of it too like an american war film that depicts this era would would show like 40 decapitations right like it would get really cartoonish and there's never that scene like there was in braveheart of like a helmet being smashed into a head i guess there's the one scene of of Temujin being attached to a stock and he uses the stock as a weapon. But that, that was didn't play gross. as cartoonish. That played as just really dark. Super yeah. brutal. I think one thing that ne- that never appears in films and also didn't appear in this one is that the aftermath of a battle like that is 10,000 not dead yet people mm. writhing and screaming, holding their guts in. Like if you're like doing a slicing battle, that's not like every shot isn't a kill shot. Right. It's a it's an awful awful next 2 days while those people lay out there in the sun getting eaten by birds screaming for mercy. Not to get all heavy, but that field is super fertile for planting the next year. Yeah. <laughs> uh do you guys want to hear a moment of pedantry from the dorks on IMDb? Always. Uh, The Mongolian tribes, including the hordes that conquered their vast empire, rode on a very peculiar race of horses, stocky build with relatively short legs and a large head. The horses used in the movie look like ordinary Western horses. Ha! Ordinary horse. Yeah. I uh, looked up Mongolian horses, and they are pretty fun to look at. They do have, like, weird bodies and big heads and short legs. 
I, I wonder if that if that sturdiness made them a better long distance warhorse. I'm guessing probably. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like they would be very fast the way they're built, but maybe they're maybe they have like higher endurance or something like that. Yeah, I wonder why they uh, it, it, in all of their attempts to make this film accurate, why they didn't also do that one little additional thing and get some real Mongolian horses. Yeah, I mean. Because they look like donkeys almost. Yeah, they they kind of do. Maybe maybe that could be a, an artistic choice. Like these horses are too silly looking to be believable. <laughs> as as uh, you know, that's a silly horse. But you do when you see young when you see kids riding these horses, it makes much more sense. Like modern sized people look ridiculous on these horses. They're that small. Yeah. Well, I mean, are we saying that? That Mongols were were short people. I think they would have to be, right? Everybody pre-modern nutrition was half yeah, as big, right? I did a study abroad in Ireland, and it's an entire country designed around people that are vastly shorter than I am. <laughs> and it's like it's not necessarily true this day and age, you know. Like they just had a lot of malnutrition in their history, and in eleven hundred, malnutrition was probably like the the rule, not the exception. Well, you, you you see that scene later at the very end of the movie where he's like, he says to his daughter, this is meat. And she's like, meat. <laughs> I mean, my great grandfather was five feet tall. I'm like a head taller than my father. It's uh, it's really weird. If I didn't look so much like him, people would be suspicious. Well, they didn't have uh, they didn't have modern nutrition in Idaho in the 60s. <laughs> my dad grew up in Manhattan. <laughs> In the fifties, oh, even worse! He's just eating, <laughs> living on canned corn and and little parts of watches. It's just jars of pickles and <laughs> stick ball and pickled eggs. Everything was pickled. Can't get tall on doo wop. <laughs> well, do we want to talk about like some of the battles? I mean, there's kind of, I think three key battle scenes that I can think of. There's the one where they raid the uh, the other camp. There's the one where they're uh, like Temujin is being pursued uh, and like sets up the the barricade in mm-hmm. the mountains and then there's the big the big like epic battle scene at the end. Should we go through those? Talk about them? Yeah. The, the first one uh, really struck me as, the one that uh, happens more than 45 minutes into the movie. Yeah. When, <laughs> I'm when sure we were all just individually watching this going like, well, how did this make the list? <laughs> 45 minutes in, there hasn't been anything to suggest that there will be war in this. <laughs> but as they're trying to sneak up uh, to rescue Borte, and they find themselves in a, in a territory where a very rocky landscape where their horses and their horse focused style of warfare was suddenly useless. It was a, it was an interesting moment where you could see on their faces that they recognized that their advantage was neutralized. Right. And they were on horseback, but suddenly they were very vulnerable. And that was an interesting element. Temujin convinces Jamuka to mount this, this attack and 
I guess Jamuka has to kind of tell his war because Temujin has no warriors of his own. Jamuka is providing 100% of the men and materiel for this adventure, which is so that Temujin can get his wife back. But Right, which is not a reason for war, according to Jamuka. Yeah, like they all seem to kind of live by these codes, but they're also willing to break the codes under certain circumstances. And Jamuka insists that Temujin never tell anybody what they were really there for. I wonder what the cover story was like. Yeah, right. I mean, what is a good reason for war? Probably to just defeat your enemies and get booty. Go get some sheep or whatever. Right. But this is the this is the the first moment where Jamuka's really really honoring the Blood Brother Pact. Yeah. And then it, it's hard to it's hard to get exactly how much time is condensed in the way this film is is plotted. Right, because he says we have to do this attack next year because this isn't a good year for it and then they show the attack. I was not clear that a year had gone by or not. It's only when you see Borta pregnant that you realize how much time has passed. But I don't know how much time went past before he suggested the attack in the first place. Yeah. You you get a sense that it's spring when they are mounting the attack. And so I guess you're meant to get that it's like, well, they had a winter in between. The geography makes that hard, too, because sometimes they're in the lowlands and sometimes they're up in the mountains. And it's hard to tell what time of year it is based on weather. At least it was to me. Right, and there's snow on the ground sometimes, and then in the very next scene, there's no snow. But immediately following this scene, which is where Jamuka like, is like the full blood bro, just goes against everything to help his bro out to get his wife back. And then Temujin immediately refuses his offer to be his second in command, leaves in the night, and takes a bunch of his dudes and and then is like super unapologetic about it like well you can't tell a mongolian what to do it's like dude i just i just <laughs> blood brothered you like all over i just put everything on the line to do something that is super unkosher yeah i really felt jamuka's side of that argument for sure but at Me no too. point did temujin attempt to explain that it's not like he lured them away that moment, though, when he promises a bunch of the booty to Jamuka's peeps was sort of a turning point, because yep. up until that point, you're feeling like Jamuka's the nicer of the two. The, he's more magnanimous and fun to be with as a viewer, but it isn't until that moment that you realize he's treating his troops like shit, and it's such a breath right. of fresh air for Temujin to give them a percentage of what they took. Well, and probably would have been a radical departure from anything anyone had ever done. And it's a sign of what made Genghis Khan of all Mongols, which is actually a title that I have on my business card. (laughs) Khan of all Mongols? Khan of all Mongols. Has anybody ever questioned the accuracy of that claim? Well, that's the thing. I've never never met a uh, native Mongolian. I've met some Mongolians who grew up in America, but I've never met one that was like, wait a minute. (laughs) You know, this actually has meaning. Yeah. When you hand, it, when you hand that business card out at Max FunCon, you know, the, yeah. they don't know what they're... People just assume that you are. Yeah, right. The scene in the mountains where they make the barrier is, is also like a sign of Temujin's like, ability to innovate around this super traditional culture that's set in its ways. 
Jamuka really admires it, and he's there with Targutai, who's the dude who, like, stole all of Temujin's, like, inherited wealth, right? Like, Temujin's father was a Khan, but when his father was poisoned, everybody left, and Targutai sort of, like, self-appointed him as the, as the new Khan. He's got kind of like a Greek mythological vendetta against Temujin because he's he just never wants Temujin to come avenge himself. Yeah, and Targetai like repeatedly reveals himself to be a weak con, and then he gets uh, he gets really put in his place uh, by Jamuka later on when Jamuka says, you know, Temujin is my property or whatever, and then without even looking at him, he goes, and so are you. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. Targetai just kind of steps back into the shadows and you're like, oof. Yeah. He also at one point says to Targetai, there are two strong Mongols in, <laughs> on the steps. One is me. The other is Temujin. <laughs> yeah. It's like back off. But I, but there was a thing. There was a problem with that scene, which was that Temujin runs around the corner of that rocky outcrop. Yeah. And Targetai uh, says, shouldn't we chase him, sir? And uh, Jamuka's like, no hurry, you know, my friend, you'll, you'll see. And basically he gives him time to set up this entire barricade and then comes around the corner and is like, see, what did I tell you? But I thought that was because he'd like never considered the idea of setting up, setting up a keep. Like, the idea is, is that they have all those carts because they've got the women and children with them. So they send the women and children away and they use the carts to build this wall Right. I feel like the only the only mistake is there's no like they didn't use archers at all. Like right. on on the advancing combined forces of Jamuka and Targutai, like if they'd if they'd uh, started with arrows, I feel like they would have made that a pretty even fight despite having less guys. Yeah, good point. Fewer guys. Don't write in. <laughs> and that and that felt uh that felt like a like something that probably was considered a violation of Mongol warfare code or something like building a fort and manning it. You know, they were all kind of like, huh? (laughs) Oh, I never figured Temujin for a coward. Yeah. Like, huh? Interesting. But they, but they built, they built no permanent structures, right? They, they like carried their tents with them everywhere they went. You never once see a building. Yeah. What are you guys, uh, what are your associations with yurts? Uh, the the yurt is the structure you don't want to pay extra for when you stay at a campground. That's my relationship <laughs> to a yurt. I don't know. The yurts are the best places to stay at, at Doe Bay, unless yeah. you can get one of the cabins that has a bathroom. I haven't been performing at Doe Bay, so that's been a problem for me. My sense of yurts in the Northwest are that they get moldy smelling. Yeah. Because it rains all the time. I learned to scuba dive in a yurt. Wait a minute. We had to take like scuba class where they teach you about all the diseases you can get by not doing scuba properly. It was uh, the classroom was a yurt. This is very confusing to me. You get diseases from not scubaing properly? Like the bends or nitrogen narcosis. Would you call those diseases? I yeah, know. I was thinking like you're not supposed to have sex with your scuba instructor, Ben. <laughs> the hell? Yeah, like, yeah, you get tuberculosis or something, but those are just like injuries. You want to wash your snorkel good, otherwise you get the herp. I'm not entirely clear on on the definition of disease. Maybe condition is a better term, but <laughs> oh, all right. 
but like uh yeah if you go down if you go down too deep without the right gas mixture you can like lose your mind sure that's true just living in my world (laughs) if you guys go down too deep with me without the right gas mixture you're gonna lose your minds that's why I always roll down my window when I'm in the car with you, John. I don't want the gas mixture <laughs> to put me under. So then there's the climactic battle, which is like the truly sort of Lord of the Rings style yeah. war. This is, the, this is the battle that we signed up for. And it literally happens at the like... I think at like the two hour mark is when you get to see this finally. And, and we should say we're, we're confused about this, not uh, about what our definition of a war movie is, but this was a fascinating movie. It was not, it's not like it was dull or unworthy. We were just waiting for there to be a bunch of sword play. Right. Like, you know, going in, this is a Genghis Khan film. So yeah. when is he going to conquer all of China, Russia, and into Europe. Right, right. But it was. But I, I was enjoying the film up until this two-hour point where suddenly he's wearing a helmet <laughs> that you never saw before. Yeah, is that the same helmet that uh, Mel Brooks, Mel Gibson has in a uh, no, Mel Brooks has in Braveheart? <laughs> Mel Brooks's part in Braveheart is great. <laughs> yeah, it was a real Don Rickles moment. <laughs> His disemboweling scene was uh, so complainy. <laughs> he was like, Dark Helmet? How did you get in this film? <laughs> it's a very digital battle scene, unfortunately. I thought that yeah. some of the like the, the, the close and medium shots were all really cool and exciting, but when they go to the super wide 10,000 foot view... The uh, special effects are not great. They didn't linger there for long, though, which which helped on the intercutting. That's I mean, true. I don't know, Ben. This is an $18 million film, and I thought they squeezed every fucking cent out of it. Like, they I think for sure it did. looks incredible for that budget. I don't think you could make a, a Mongolian epic for for anywhere near that, then or now. I imagine that some of the costs of shooting a film like this in Kazakhstan are are yeah. lower than they would be if we shot it in Burbank. You can get a deal on the labor. Yeah. They probably didn't have roast beef sandwiches at craft services. Right, yeah. I mean, there's. I think there's literally 1,500 extras in this scene. All being paid a dollar a week. Right. And all those costumes. The costume budget must have been enormous. Well, and they probably were using old old Soviet film stock, too, that they found in a found next to some uh, warheads <laughs> the initial like sortie in this film is that the jamuka sends a huge number of horses out like hundreds of horses and tibujin responds with maybe like 25 guys on horseback with twin swords and they they go through like cutting dudes up and by the end there's like four of them left but they've really done some damage but then they turn around and they're heading back toward Temujin's line when archers pop up and start shooting Jamuka's uh, horsemen but also Temujin's horsemen they're just like indiscriminately firing at all horsemen yeah they kill everybody which there was no explanation for I expected Jamuka to say like whoa 
He's killing his own guys. Yeah, he's brutal. This is like a, this is some psyops, some deep <laughs> psychological warfare. Yeah, at how brutal he is, but it goes against his uh, up until that point, his reputation in this film as like a leader you can rely on. Right. That's the line that he campaigned on when he became <laughs> yeah, the leader. That's right. That's right. Make Mongolia great again. You got to have a lot of guts to be the first horseman out of the gate when you're fighting for Genghis Khan. <laughs> you basically can't fear death to have that job. But but you do get a feeling at least that this is how he was so successful. And then at the end, as he sort of marched at the very end of the film, as he marches around Mongolia, uh, uniting all the peoples and just like he rides into to places and everybody kneels down kind of expecting the sword and he's like, everyone here can join my army. And they're all like, what? Whoa, thanks. <laughs> A job? Yeah, like, that's better than dying. I did read that this was meant to be the first film in a trilogy. Right. And that two other films were were scheduled. And I guess the next one was going to be the, the one where he, you know, rides across and does his bad business yeah and then at the end of the film he he winds up getting frozen in carbonite <laughs> the second film is the targutai strikes back <laughs> but yeah he's got he's got a film where he's just going across laying siege to samarkand and putting everybody's head on a post then there's a third there had to be a third film where his son took it all the way to Kiev, but I guess those two films, well, obviously they didn't get made or we would be discussing them. Yeah, it's uh, it's in something called Development Hill yeah. at the moment. So this was like the first film of the Hobbit trilogy, which is to say a movie that should have been one movie that for some, well, for, for one reason only was turned into three movies, which is greed. Those who survived and those that did not. Yeah, those Hobbit movies are no good, aren't they? I didn't even see them. When I realized it was going to be three movies, I was like, I'm sorry. Yeah, it felt like a cash grab. I didn't see them either. Yeah. Not enough plot in that book. I watched them on an airplane at some point, and they are really, really bad. <laughs> like, Peter Jackson got so in love with the shot of, like, four to six people in medieval armor running as fast as they can from, like, 5,000 feet in the air that that's like almost all that happens <laughs> they just run through various environments the entire time real rough well much like the three rules that unify at the Mongolians right we have uh, three rules that every friendly fire host lives by discuss the movie choose a guy and assign a rating mm-hmm. uh, the object that I am using as the rating instrument for this film is something that we see fairly early on. So uh, Temujin is being uh, chased fairly constantly by Targatai as a, as a youth. And Targatai can't kill him. And the reason why is because uh, you must be at least this tall to be killed by, <laughs> by Targatai. And th by this tall, I mean a wagon wheel's height. He's dragged yeah. in front of a wagon wheel a couple of times, and then a sword is held up to the top of his head, and he is demonstrably frustrated. 
We always yeah. used a shoebox in my family to make sure it's at a right angle. Right? But they use a sword in this film. If I were Target Tai, I'd be sanding that wagon wheel down a little bit just to get this thing done. <laughs> he is so frustrated. So uh, I am using a scale of one to five wagon wheels in rating the film Mongol. Uh, I'll tee it up to you, Ben. I'm going to give this a solid four wagon wheels. I uh, I found myself really enjoying this film. It's a... Uh, it's beautiful to look at. It's a pretty interesting story. It's a I think it has a lot in common with some of the other, you know, rise of a great warrior films that we've watched, but it seems to be different in some ways also. And and I found I found it kind of refreshing in the list of films that we've watched. And I also just I mean, uh I really like to go to other places and experience other cultures. And this culture is just so different from ours in so many ways that uh, I found it uh, really interesting to kind of spend some time with it and think about what life was like in that place and time. So, uh, yeah, four wagon wheels. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to agree. Uh, I'm going to agree with everything you said. And for all those reasons, um, it was a really enjoyable film, and it was very provocative, a lot of food for thought. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but all of the suffering uh, that Temujin goes through, you know, a lot, of, a lot of movies that we've watched that have this character arc, Braveheart, for example, all of the suffering that the hero endures, we watch as the film instructs us that this has ennobled the hero, right? They've endured this suffering because they have a noble purpose or because they are, you know, uh, they're the hero. Right. And in this film we watch, and I think this is partly the, the cultural difference between us and the filmmakers, but you never quite, you, you, but it's, it's absolutely more of a case that you feel like all this suffering just makes him, I mean, it does make him a better general. It makes him a more, but it, but in a way, it makes him a more compassionate person rather than a more supernatural person. Uh, it just sort of he just endures it, and um, there's nothing that can happen to him. And and it's and there is that scene at the end, like he's ultimately victorious because he's ultimately victorious against um, against a Jamuka in that battle. Because a big storm happens and lightning starts, thunder starts happening. And we're told very early in the film that all Mongolians are afraid of thunder. And there's an obvious reason because they live on the steps. And anybody who's anything that's over five feet tall is the tallest thing for 50 miles. Right. And if you're not afraid of thunder, then you're going to die in a, of lightning. Um, but this, this big storm comes over and we watch as Temujin doesn't cower and he presses his attack through the lightning storm. And it just feels like a superpower to all of the, to all of the, of Jamuka's soldiers because Temujin's sol soldiers rally to him because he's like impossibly brave. And at the end, Jim, it's the one thing Jamuka wants to know is like, how did you, 
How are you so brave? It's like, not how are you so brave to take on a much larger army, but how are you so brave to stand up in a lightning storm? And everyone holding their personal lightning rod in the air. <laughs> yeah, right. They're <laughs> the all standing swords. there with their swords up. Yeah. Um, and, and for a minute, I thought he was going to get struck by lightning and it was going to make him into a, into a superhero. <laughs> but his answer is just like, after everything I've been through, like, I'm not afraid of anything. I spent so many nights, like, in a, in stocks, alone, running across this this territory with nowhere to hide. And I just realized, like, well, lightning can't, lightning's just whatever. And you go, yeah, right. He's not heroic, even in his most heroic moment. It's, it's more compassionate. So that, that was a, a difference between this and other films that, that appealed to me a lot. The one complaint I have is that there are a couple of moments where the movie turns on a sort of supernatural, like he goes up to the mountain to pray to his God. And both times his God actually does appear in the form of a white wolf that we never see anywhere else. And at one point the white wolf actually does free him from a stock and, and it's the only example of supernaturality in the movie. And it's a, it's, it feels a little convenient and it feels a little bit like a hat tip to the expectation of the, of the Mongol viewer that we will, will accept the biblical origin of, right. the, of the hero. This is, if, if there is a divine right of kings, this is where Genghis Khan got his. Right, right. A wolf appeared. And uh, and unlocked the you know like the oh, a wolf appeared with a magic key or something or used psionics or whatever wolves <laughs> do. So that was my that was a beef I had. But if, if it was my dog, he would have just chewed through the wood. <laughs> if it was, was most dogs, he would have barked at Temujin, just stood there and barked at him like a dumbass <laughs> until they both died of starvation. <laughs> but I'm going to give this four swords notched wagon wheels as well um it really i think it will the film will stick with me for a while as i parse it yeah i agree with you guys uh i think i think this might be one of the first times we've had the exact same score across the board it's it's four wheels for me this film feels like braveheart in its attention to accuracy which i think we can all agree uh is deficient in most in most parts of it because you know the history of of this figure is so diluted through the centuries but uh it's more like gladiator in its scope and for that reason like i feel like this belongs on a movie shelf and it deserves to be seen by people throw away your braveheart dvd and and put mongol on the shelf is what i would say i think yeah, this yeah. is a really fun good movie that that a modern audience especially would really enjoy. Go uh, pull your high school yearbook off the wall and scratch out your Braveheart quote and uh, put in <laughs> Jamuka saying, you're letting an enemy go free, and Temujin saying, I'm letting a brother go free. <laughs> yeah, that's when the brotherhood thing comes back, finally, comes full circle. Very nice. I should also point out to, uh, to our listeners who are Game of Thrones fans... Uh, I'm sure we don't have any of those, John. (laughs) 
that it's very obvious from early on in this movie that George R.R. R. Martin also has read the secret history of the Mongols because the uh, Khal Drogo storyline is ripped from the headline <laughs> of the Mongol story and and very, very much borrows from um, a lot of aspects of this culture and will seem familiar to you if you've watched Game of Thrones. And, and, and that's an interesting juxtaposition to see it uh, to see it now shown in a in a different and I guess like even with all the flaws of of the his, historicity of this movie, still probably more accurate than Game of Thrones. There, there's no Khaleesi figure in this story. Far less nudity in this film. Also, no one's hanging dung in Mongol. <laughs> <laughs> you can put that sticker on the box. <laughs> Just a bright pink star sticker that says no one's hanging dung there are scenes in genghis khan's life that don't make it into this film that are in game of thrones um genghis khan did actually put to death one of his defeated adversaries by pouring molten silver into his eyes and ears jesus fucking christ i know which is a thing that happens in game of game of thrones like like actually molten silver if you if you want to think about that uh, for a second does he live? Is he just is, is he just like Colossus from then on? <laughs> Did he die? <laughs> um, I don't think that he lived. No. Okay, I haven't uh, seen Game of Thrones, so that's why I had to ask. Oh, oh no, I, he didn't live. But there are other scenes I think in Genghis Khan's life and in this time period where people were like enemies were not just put to death, but like actually boiled alive and giant cauldrons i mean it was it's even worse than it's made to seem if you can believe that (laughs) (laughs) really bad things happen yeah this is the uh this is the cleaned up sanitized romantic genghis khan not the uh not the dark gritty reboot that i'm sure we'll get in a few years (laughs) one last thing to do on the show is the selection of our guys uh, my guy is the old man that is kind to Temujin when he's got the stocks around his neck as a as a young boy and uh, like pulls the flies off of the wounds on his neck and stuff. Uh, guy just seemed like like one of the good people who is living in this brutal system and just trying to like not be a dick to everybody. And uh, I just I appreciated that he was. Uh, you know, provided an example of positivity to Temujin, despite the circumstances. Yeah, this is a super cruel world, and the people who demonstrate kindness uh, really stick out. Yeah. How about you, Adam? Uh, I chose someone similar, and uh, I chose Borchu, who is the guy who released him from that stock and gave him a horse. Like, you sort of wings a sword at the stack, busts it open. Yeah. Sends him on his way. Like, there's no real reason that he does that, except, I guess, just the goodness of his heart. Like, we never see him again. This is one of the many chapters in the film where Temujin is paid a kindness. He says to that person who's paying the kindness, I'll never forget you. And this is, I think, is the one person who is forgotten. Like, he's he doesn't come up again <laughs> in the same way that many of the others do. 
there kept being times when Temujin would have like a whole bunch of horses and I was like, oh, he's, I bet he's going to go give like 10 horses to Borchu. And that doesn't happen. <laughs> he really, Temujin doesn't make it out of any of his pickles without the kindness of others. Like he, he doesn't, he never frees himself from anything, really. And I think that's an interesting through line to his character. What about you, John? Who's your guy? Uh, you know, I've, I've been, I've been feeling on our show, like I keep picking guys who are kind of main characters, like, <laughs> oh, my, my guy Rambo, <laughs> uh, which, which wasn't in the initial spirit of your idea. And so in this movie, like I wanted to limit myself to a, to a tangential role rather than, rather than use my guy as another opportunity to talk at length about the plot of the film. Uh, my guy was the the Tatar chief who poisoned Temujin's father with some bad milk. Oh boy! <laughs> Early on in the film, you see them sitting at a distance because the the uh, the the Mongol tradition, the law, the code, said that there's no fighting at a campground, which is also the Good Sam Club's code, by the way. <laughs> Um, uh, and so they sit at a distance from one another and stare at each other. And then they send bowls of milk back and forth. Like tribute milk. Yeah. Like, here you go. Here's some milk. And then the code is, and, and, and Temujin's father is counseled by his, by one of his dudes. Like, don't drink that milk. Have a slave drink at first. And he says, you can't violate the code. Even if you don't, even if you think it's bad can't violate the code otherwise the world goes crazy and he drinks the bad milk and it kills him just love the image of a bunch of tough guys sitting around drinking milk (laughs) i think that this mongolian sheep milk is also like fermented and yeah from all accounts tastes really really awful yeah how would you know if you were poisoned or you just had bad milk yeah, well, bad milk that's been carried around in a yak spleen or however it is they, <laughs> whatever those boda bags are. Uh, yeah, they definitely are getting drunk off of it because yeah. Temujin and Jamuka, after their raid on the on the village, get shithouse drunk on milk. Yeah, they do. These guys weren't hip to the rule of poisoning someone, which is never watch them drink the beverage you give them. You get to look away. Look away. That's right. Signal signal that you've poisoned the milk. But they, those, that little crowd of, of Tatars across the field are just eyeballing them so hard. And it, it really, I really loved the, the, the very brief performance of just sitting there with arms crossed like, that's right, drink the fucking milk because it's our code and we're totally violating the code. <laughs> <laughs> We've come to the part of the program where uh, we we select our next film, and uh, I, I don't know if people keep track of like the number of movies on the list. This is a we have slightly fewer movies this week because we uh, cherry picked a few to uh, to save for special episodes. So we have eighty seven titles on the list this week. John, do you want to uh, throw out a random number between one and eighty seven? Yeah, let's uh, let's do thirty nine. Okay, our uh, film for next week is a nineteen ninety five film directed by Simon Winsid, 
It's a Vietnam film called Operation Dumbo Drop. (laughs) Wow. Is this a kid's movie? What the hell is Operation Dumbo Drop? Operation Dumbo Drop has a great cast, including Danny Glover and Ray Liotta and Dennis Leary. Who put this travesty on the list? I believe I I put it on. This, This is a movie that I saw lots of like advertisements for and and like the cardboard stand-ups that they put in the movie theater promoting i never got to see the film but it's about some soldiers in vietnam taking an elephant to some other part of vietnam (laughs) hal hinson writing in the washington post said the film is so peculiar that one barely knows where to start (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll figure out where to start and where to finish as we review the 1995 classic Operation Dumbo Drop. Can't wait. Wow. Wow. Oh, right on either side. I could have picked Rand by... uh, Kurosawa. I could have. I could have gotten Midway, the great, the great film from 1976. Instead, uh, instead, you got Operation Dumbo Drop. <laughs> what you want to do is turn the Vietnam War into a Disney film. Right. Oh, uh, I can't wait. I honestly can't wait. This is like a, one of the weird ones that I put on because I remembered it from my childhood. I don't know anything about it, but I am excited to see it. Razor thin box office success Ben. budget twenty four million box office twenty four million six hundred and seventy thousand. <laughs> it could have been six hundred and seventy seven thousand if my mom had let me go see it, like I asked. Wow, Operation Dumbo Drop. No. <laughs> well, it's it's peculiar at least, and that's better than like. This movie is so shitty, I don't know where it's <laughs> uh, Well, that will be our film next week. And in the meantime, for John Roderick and Adam Branica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fires of Maximum Fun podcast that's hosted by Adam Branica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is edited and produced by me, Rob Schulte. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. If you like joining in the conversation, well then head on over to our discussion groups that you can find on Facebook and Reddit. But if you'd like to talk on Twitter, use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at Cut for Time, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.